Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 13, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I'll say that again, but three times as fast. PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So, yeah, it's a long Earl, I know, but it's also, obviously, the name of our podcast. So just put a .com on the end of it, and you'll find everything that you need from this podcast and past episodes there. My name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and the upcoming Spiritual Grit book that's releasing April 24th. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a bit. And I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which we always use. <laughs> if you could see me right now, I'd have a little starburst coming off my tooth. We always use the Jesus-Centered Bible in our in our Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast. So today we're welcoming our Good friend Steph Hilbury to the kickoff episode for a series that we're going to continue late into April. It's called Heresies About Jesus That We Commonly Embrace. So we are going for the attention-getting series title there. So here's Stephanie. Stephanie, you, you, maybe you can say hello. Hi, everyone. I know I'm not on the show very often. I think I've been on one episode, but I think maybe you've heard my name a few times. Like um, constantly. Like constantly. Yeah. Um, I work a little bit more behind the scenes, so I know all about you all, and I pray for you all on a regular basis, and I'm just excited to be here talking with you. And here's something you wouldn't know, that Stephanie's really embedded in this podcast uh, in, in a way that y- you wouldn't know, because it's behind the scenes. She's been always been part of the three-person team, uh, the Becky Nader, myself, and Steph, uh, kind of... Uh, putting together the theme, the focus, the connections that we make on these episodes. She's always been a part of that from from the beginning. So just mm-hmm. so you know, that that's also her role. And she's going to be joining us occasionally whenever mm-hmm. one of these episodes hits her sweet spot, which today is one of those times, because this next month, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to explore these common beliefs about Jesus that we hold on to, even though they're simply not true. And on this episode, we're going to tackle a really big one. It's, it's Jesus will never give us more than we can handle. You have probably heard somebody somewhere in church say, Jesus or God will never give you more than you can handle. And that's actually not true. That's a kind of a heresy. And we're going to explore that um, on today's episode. And I thought it would be good to start with Steph, since this is your in your sweet spot, why is it in your sweet spot? What what's your own history with this kind of truism and why do you feel so strongly about it? Well, Rick and I sat down and made a long list of you could call them things Christians say or Christian cliches, <laughs> things that we think are in the Bible that aren't in the Bible. And this one is definitely probably number one on my list because I think it's the one I've heard the most in my life. I've even had family members that I love, you know, I'll be going through a hard time or one of our other family members will be going through a hard time and I'll hear this. Oh, you know, just remember, Jesus will never give us more than we can handle. And every time I hear it, I think, well, that is just not true. 
this is more than we can handle. And <laughs> <laughs> this thing right now that's happening. This is a hard I thing. Don't, God, I don't know what your standard for more than can handle is, but mine is considerably lower than yours. Yeah. It's true. And I think I've had a lot of prayers in my life where I have said, this is this is too much. I mean, and it, it legitimately has felt like too much. And I think that I, I really bought into this idea that Jesus would never give us more than we could handle when I was a young person. And in truth, what I think we're really saying when we say this is that, hey, things won't be too hard. They'll be maybe hard, but not too hard. And we'll talk a little bit in a, a little in a bit about how hard, but maybe not hard in the way that I don't want it to be hard. So what's embedded in that? What is the emotional need that you think is being met? When we say this or embrace this, well, I, you know, I grew up in in the church. I was a good little youth group girl, and I, I, I genuinely had a heart to follow Christ from a really young age. But I also believed a little bit that if you do that, if you love Him and you follow Him, then your life might have some challenges, but it's not going to be that hard. That God just He loves me, and I'm faithful, and the reward for that is that I kind of get. Maybe not a free pass, but I get like, you know, the easy ride. I get like the small, this is a small world tour, Disney versus the, you know, Thunder Mountain. Like, and I really did buy into that. And it wasn't until I got into my 20s when um, we started encountering, my husband and I started encountering some real challenges, real financial challenges, real challenges with starting a family that were heartbreaking um, and having family members also go through very serious, difficult things. And I just thought, what what's going on here? I, I thought that by following God, I would somehow not have to go through some of these very difficult things. And those were in, in those circumstances. Those were when people would say, oh, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I just... That was never very helpful. Yeah, and, <laughs> and the, I think some of the emotional need that's tapped into here. I was just thinking as you were saying this that that it, it it's 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 essentially our deep fear of the unknown. And uh I was just thinking about how in the last year we've gotten hooked on watching Stranger Things. I love was, that show. It was really because a friend of mine Walt Mueller who's a, who who runs the Center for Parent Youth Understanding um and is a culture expert and has very high standards and sharp filters for teaching people how to consume culture, mm -hmm. he was extolling the virtues of Stranger Things. And I thought, Walt, really? <laughs> and so I watched this, I started watching the show, and I got hooked. And um, there's been two seasons of Stranger Things. The second season, I think, is a weaker season. And I've asked myself, why is that? In the Stranger Things, by the way, is basically a, a, the story of uh, a friend group of, of young people. They're middle schoolers. And uh, the adults that sort of swirl around them, mm -hmm. and these crazy, strange, um, evil-tinged things that start <laughs> to happen in their town that are supernatural things. Oh. And it's kind of like E.T. meets Goonies. Right. With that 80s retro feeling. Yeah, it's set in the 80s. Complete with the music and the fashion. It's fantastic. It's And, it's, and the first season is just unbelievably well-written. Mm -hmm. And... And then I had to ask myself, well, why don't I like season two so much? And in season two, you start to see more sort of a what I would call typical uh, horror light 
kinds of things that are in it, you start to see monsters show up, and the supernatural is, you start to see more of the supernatural, but in season one, it's just the dread of what could happen, the the dread of the unknown. It's mostly people responding to what they don't understand, and the fear that that produces, and it's so good relationally. The people on the show show what it's like to have to deal with the unknown and the fear it produces. And it just reminds me that really our deepest fear is what's around the corner. So when we say God will never give you or Jesus will never give you more than you can handle, we're really trying to manage whatever's around the corner, mm-hmm. that, that, that whatever's around there isn't really the monster we think it might be, mm-hmm. because it couldn't possibly be that bad, because Jesus said it wouldn't be beyond us. But I think it's, it's good to, to kind of t- uh, start out by going back to the root of where this quote-unquote heresy started, and it's a misreading of something Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So let's, let's, let's start there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Again, if you're not driving, you want to flip over to that, you can. Um, but 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13 says that here's what Paul says. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall, as the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful, and here's, here's the misreading part, He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. And Steph, you and I were talking about how this statement gets you know, like mistranslated, like that telephone game where you pass along a phrase around a circle and some and you whisper it in somebody's ear and you find out what it really becomes at mm-hmm. the end of that time. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bit different. So the the... The central thing that Paul's pointing out here is that, and this is disturbing enough, that God won't tempt you beyond what you can, or will not allow temptation beyond what you can bear. So talk a little bit about what the difference between the way we've translated this is and what Paul actually says. So there's two promises. Um, There's the promise that Jesus will not give you more than you can handle, which to me is always usually shared when someone's going through something hard. It's like, it'll be hard, but it won't be too hard. So there's this idea that, well, God will keep you from experiencing stuff that's, you know, unidealistically hard. Um, And then the second one is that the promises that God will enable you through the power of his spirit to stand and resist sin, succumbing to sin. And to me, that is a very different thing. We in our lives have the power of the Spirit to overcome sin, and that is a—it's an immensely wonderful promise. And if you have ever struggled with addiction, if you have ever struggled with the, those words, when Paul says, I know the thing that I should not do, and yet I do it, that's the power that he's talking about, the power to encounter temptation, something that you desire, something that's tempting you, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, and being able through his spirit to overcome and not sin. It is not saying that in your life you won't encounter hard things that in fact totally surpass your physical, emotional, and mental ability to handle it on your own. Yeah, that's really good. And and the 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 uh, nasty little twist embedded in what Paul is saying here too is that if you slow down and read this carefully, he's saying God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Oh, but God allows temptations, mm-hmm. um, just not more than I can stand. So I wrote this whole book called Sifted, 
um, uh, that was very much about this, how God allows um, temptation, which we know temptation does not come from him. He's allowing his enemy to tempt us, and why would he do that in the first place? Well, the whole book of Sifted is about why God would allow some temptations into our life and why they're a part of his love for us. So I explored this in a whole book-length way because it's such a big deal. But again, that's about a totally different thing Mm -hmm. than God won't allow uh, hardships more than I feel like I can handle Mm -hmm. on my own. So, So the... The I think we need to move on then to well, what is it that that um, really is embedded underneath this sort of uh, strong uh, feeling we have that really God's not going to allow anything harder than I can handle in my life? What what is embedded in that, especially when we don't feel like we can rise to the occasion? What 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 about um, the self-narrative we have going on inside when we struggle to rise to the occasion, when we struggle to deal with the hardship that we're in in the moment, and we say, well, I must have gotten something wrong here. Um, mm-hmm. I must have gone wrong here. I, I'm, I'm not rising to the occasion, so something in me is wrong. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Steph, just sure. that, that feeling that we have sometimes of not getting it right. Mm-hmm. So one of my personal experiences of having something that has been a real challenge is that my husband and I have not been able to start a family. It's been about 10 years, and we were diagnosed with infertility 10 years ago. And this kind of put me um, in a community of people who are in the same situation because it, it definitely, you kind of flock together. And one thing that I observed over and over again was for people who follow the Lord, when they were in the midst of this infertility, there was a group of them who were asking the question, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Where did I screw up? What mistake did I make in my past with the Lord that is causing this to happen to me in my life? It must be something that I did wrong. And if I could just figure out what that thing is, then I could repent of it. And this you know, door would open up for me that's closed. And I think that 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 is a common reaction when on some level we believe that hard things won't really happen to us when we follow the Lord. And then when they do, it causes us to really challenge, you know, God can't really be bringing this into my life because I've been telling myself that he won't allow, you know, things that are too hard. So this feels too hard, which must mean that it's me. It's my problem. I must be doing something wrong here. Yeah, that's really good. So uh, I thought it would be good to kind of uh, skip into a couple of places here where Jesus directly addresses this kind of mindset, this pattern that we have in our self-narrative. So one of them is in Luke chapter 13. Again, if you're not driving, if you want to flip over there, you can go to Luke chapter 13. It's the first five verses. This is an interesting little thing that we've never uh, really done on the podcast before, where Jesus is actually talking about two of the biggest news stories of his time. He's referencing something that's happened right then, kind of like if we might reference right now maybe the, the Parkland school shooting or the Austin uh, you know, bombings mm-hmm. that happened. That's what Jesus is referencing here. They're news stories that everybody knows about. Mm-hmm. So in Luke 13, here's what he says. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee, as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Jesus poses a question 
to the pe- to his disciples, the people that are listening to him. He says, "Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee?" So what's Jesus doing here? He's surfacing this interior narrative. Mm-hmm. He knows how people think, exactly how you described, mm-hmm. Steph. He knows this where this is where we go to, so he kind of outs it. He drags it from the darkness into the light, and he says, do you think those people that got killed by Pilate were worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee? Were they singled out because they screwed up in such a major way? Mm-hmm. So he's outing this question, and then he says, is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. We'll come back to that in a second. Then he goes into the second news story. He says, and what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again, that unless you repent, you'll perish too. So this, on the surface, sounds like he's saying, no, that's not why that happened to them. But then he says a hard thing, mm-hmm. an edgy thing. And, and uh, the, the deeper I sank into this, I realized what he was saying is, look, you're going to die just like those people did. It's not like you've been saved uh, from death because you're so much better than the, ta- than the people that the tower fell on or the people that Pilate murdered. Every, all of you are going to die. The people that the tower fell on have just as much a need to repent and turn back to God as you do. So don't think that you're in the clear here because the tower didn't fall on you. All everyone needs to turn back to me, um, not just those those people. So uh, there's a second little story here um, that I thought would be good to throw in here because Jesus readdresses this another time in John chapter nine. It's where he meets uh, this this man. All we know about him is that he was born blind. So. Jesus walk along, he sees this man born blind, he raises the same question again, or uh, the people around him actually in this time raise the question about, hey, was it this guy that screwed up, or was it his parents that screwed up that made him end up being born blind? I mean, somebody had to screw up here mm-hmm. because the guy was born blind, and Jesus responds and says, nope, this happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. So again, he's saying, no, that's you guys got it wrong. That narrative that you have inside is wrong. That this right now you're going to see the power of God at work because I'm going to give him back his sight. And this happened long ago so that this moment could happen where I show you what the power of God's really like. So let's talk a little bit here, Steph, about mm-hmm. some of the misconceptions that we have relative to why bad things happen. And the fact that um, sometimes we ascribe meaning, uh, I thought you said it so well, if we expect God to not give us more than we can handle, then the only viable solution we have for when we feel overwhelmed by something is we screwed up somehow. Mm-hmm. How, in these two little vignettes, what meaning comes from these things that Jesus is trying to point out toward that narrative? How would you say he's trying to leverage our narrative by correcting this, these common perceptions about why, why stuff happens to us. Well, I mean, I think he understands that obviously, and we've we've talked about this before in previous podcast episodes. We we naturally avoid pain. We're averse to pain. We don't want to experience hardship. He knows that that's in our hearts, and there's a lot of painful things that happen. And I think he knows that we're always we're always wanting to know: Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And how can I be safe? And if I just try harder, maybe it'll guarantee that I'm safe. And this is something that that comes up 
over and over again in this podcast, we do not have a transactional relationship. This is not a transactional faith. So it is not about doing the right things so that we can stay safe. It is about an intimate relationship. And Well, we got to pause there for a second. That's so good what you just said. So the transactional relationship is a vending machine relationship, essentially. It's And we all do this, gang. All of us slip into this default setting. Even when we're committed to not follow this mindset, we still find ourselves kind of slipping into it every now and then. And it's simply, if I do this and this and this, this is an interior conversation, if I do this and this and this, I can expect God to reward me at the end for having done this and this and this. It's so easy to slip into, but it is then a relationship with a vending machine, not a passionate, intimate relationship with a with a, a person, the person of Jesus. So to, it's the difference between a transactional relationship and a passionate relationship is that in a passionate relationship, the transaction goes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can see this even in our human relationships. The deepest forms of love are not transactional. In fact, in a, uh, I'm not, I, I don't want to paint too broad a brush here, but in a lot of relationships that break down, it's because the transaction's no longer worth it. What I'm getting isn't worth what I'm giving, and it exposes the nature of the relationship, which was it was transactional from the beginning. But what God really wants to model and and to um, draw us and invite us into is a uh, passionate relationship that doesn't depend on the transaction. It's all grown out of an intimate connection and a commitment to the other that has nothing to do with the transaction. So anyway, sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> now I can't remember where you were going with that, <laughs> but that was such an important thing that it's that we have this embedded transactional default setting mm-hmm. in us, and it's really dangerous because if we say, if we've propped up the relationship by saying, um, if I do this and this and this, then God will do this, and God doesn't do what we expected, then our, the foundation of our relationship is destroyed. Mm-hmm. And what what Jesus is trying to say is, that's not a very good foundation for a relationship. I don't want you to have a transactional relationship with me. Therefore, don't think like, you got it made if the tower didn't fall on you, if a pilot didn't murder you. You're thinking in a transactional way, you guys, and that's going to get destroyed. Um, I'm inviting you into something else. Anyway, back to Steph. What were you saying again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the... One of the reasons that I, my, I, I, f- I feel a lot of empathy for people who are in a situation that is truly hard. And one of my biggest concerns about this phrase that, oh, Jesus will never give you more than you can handle, is that it, it's so trite in the face of a true hmm. hard thing. And as Christians, we, sometimes we say things to each other um, as a way to kind of comfort or as a way to sort of try and explain away something that's happening. And Rick and I were talking this week about some of the truly hard things that people are going through right now and how um, phrases like this really just don't do us any good. They Mm. don't take us anywhere. And a couple of the examples that we were thinking of is both Rick and I and, and Adam, our producer, work with youth ministry And we got an article this week that came kind of across our radar from a gentleman in the in youth ministry, and he was referencing the suicide rate Mm -hmm. of teenagers. 
And I think in Spiritual Grid, actually, Rick, you talk about this. You talk about suicide with teenagers is number two cause yeah. of death at so the time n- that you were... It's number two cause of death, and it's quickly gaining on auto accidents as number one. Mm-hmm. So it's a epidemic of suicide among teenagers in America. You know, and I, I know a few kids who have died in the last year. I mean, people that, not that I was, you know, in a regular relationship with, but people that were friends of family members. And this is a a very real thing that's happening. And to encounter a family that's going through this or to encounter a teenager who is struggling, truly struggling and say, oh, Jesus won't give you more than you can handle. To me, that just falls so flat. Well, and and the fact that this is such an epidemic uh, this is this is what we were talking about the other day, that it's on the face of it saying, yeah, there are a lot of people for whom life is way more than they can mm-hmm. handle, and not just unbelieving people, people not mm-hmm. following Jesus. There are a lot of people who follow Jesus that find life just too much to deal with, and we know this is true because not just the, the suicide crisis, but the opioid mm-hmm. abuse crisis in our culture is the same thing. It's uh, how do you get addic- addicted on opioids, which are basically pain medications. Uh, often it happens in an innocent way. You end up getting that kind of medication after an operation or something like that, and you get addicted uh, s- subtly by it. But it's also they're also used to cover over the overwhelmingness mm-hmm. that people feel in life, and then those people end up getting addicted to that method of covering over that feeling of just being too much. One of the things that... Um, in my research in the world of youth culture and in how teenagers see uh, what their li- uh, the challenges of their life right now, if you listen to teenagers and survey teenagers about what how they experience life, the best way to describe it is that life is too much. Mm-hmm. There's too muchness around them. They have too many cable TV choices, too many social media choices, too many choices for what to do after high school. Too many uh, fast food restaurant choices. Too many choices in the grocery store. Too many choices. Their experience of life is it's just too much. And those who commit suicide or use drugs or alcohol to cover over their pain are uh, many of them responding to how life is just too much. So this thing of God will never give you too much to handle flies in the face Mm -hmm. of people's actual real-life experiences. You know, and I think in a situation, so so let's say that I'm I'm sitting down on a sofa with a teenager, and she is sharing with me her desperation and the dark place that she's in. What is better than saying, oh, honey, Jesus will never give you more than you can handle? I would much rather say, this is too much for you. I see you right now. This is too much for you. I will help you. The Spirit will help you. Let's get through this together. That is what our response should be. Not, oh, you, you won't have more than you can handle. She's buried. Oh. So I think that, that needs to be our response when we encounter some of these legitimately hard things. Is I see you, and this is too much for you. Let me help you. Now, one of the things that's when Spiritual Grit comes out in April that's going to be uh, controversial, I know already, is I, I write, uh, I spend a lot of time looking into the role of suicide in our culture right now. And one thing that's not really being talked about and is in the book, Spiritual Grit, is 
Now, when we talk about why are young people committing suicide, the conversation often goes to bullying or behavior on social media that leverages this, or the nastiness of the culture, the nastiness of how people treat each other in adolescent culture. And I think those are all red herrings. It's not that they're not true, but they're not getting at the true source here. And the, the thing that, uh, that is in spiritual grit that I think is going to be controversial is there's actually quite a bit of research that is, is showing that in an affluent society where people naturally remove hardship from their kids' lives because they can. They have the means to do it when other generations did not. And the more affluent the society, the higher the likelihood of suicide. And the, I believe the underlying reason for that is because of the systematic extraction of hardship from kids' lives. So there's always going to be hard things for people to face. Every new generation has difficult things. It's not one generation doesn't have harder things than another. They're all hard in their own way. What has changed is kids' ability to persevere through the hardship. And I, I think in part the reason why is they've had a parent generation that has systematically removed hardship from them throughout their childhood, and they're less prepared to deal with it, the hardship, when it comes. So that's part of the message of spiritual grit. It's never a loving thing to steal from something valuable from somebody that they'll need the rest of their life. So therefore, it's not value. It's not loving to steal hardship from our kids' lives that will actually help them down the line. So again, in spiritual grit, in the introduction of the book, uh, a, a key story that I kind of I had I had this need to bridge from the introduction of the book into the rest of the book. And I just was unsettled. I had not yet found the right bridge to do this that would make it an, a, the, the kind of on-ramp I wanted into the rest of the book. And then my pastor at my church said something offhand from the front that the light bulb went off, and I thought, that is it. So he was talking about the story of when Moses was called by God in the wilderness, in the burning bush, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is out there minding his own business, tending his sheep. He sees this bush burning, and it's not burning up. And he's like, what the heck? And he gets close to it, and he's like, what is going on? And then he hears a voice coming out of the bush. Can you imagine? how? Talk about stranger things. <laughs> That's a stranger thing. And the voice says, hey, basically, hey, Moses, I've chosen you to lead the millions of Israelites who are in Egypt right now out of captivity under the nose of Pharaoh into the Promised Land. Can you imagine this voice saying that to you? Because we would think exactly what Moses thought, because we know his thoughts, because he, he talked back to the bush. He said, basically, you've got to be kidding. You've got the wrong guy. There's po no possible way I can do what you're saying to do. What you just told me I have to do is overwhelming. And, and God's response to him is, oh, well, Mo Moses, Moses, calm down. I'm going to be with you. So Moses was treating this request as if he had to handle it all, and what God was saying, no, 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 that's not what I meant. You're going to do this, but we're going to do it together. And my pastor, Scotty Priest, said the line that just riveted me is, he said, this idea that God will never give us too much to handle is wrong. Um, the truth is, God will never give us too much to handle together. Mm -hmm. It's that last word mm -hmm. that means everything. Well, and I think that we could be even a little more provocative about it. And this is something that's more come up, provocative. More provocative. This is something that's come up with the 
the back cover for Spiritual Grit, which is there's a sentence there that says, Jesus injects hardship into our life. And I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had where, are we sure we want to say it? Is that true? Does he really do that? And I kind of, I think about the movie uh, Miracle. You, you guys maybe have seen it. It's this the story of the hockey team from the 19, like, Placid. 1990, 19, I think. 1990. 1990. Lake Placid Olympics. 80. We're getting a word from Adam. So it's the the story of when the U.S. team defeats Russia. And there's this great scene in the movie. You know, who knows if this happened in real life, but for dramatic effect, there's this great scene in the movie where the coach is pushing them and he's having them skate lines back and forth. And they're, they are cramping up, they're throwing up and they're miserable. And he keeps asking them, you know, who do you play for? Who do you play for? And their typical response has been, oh, I play for such and such team. I play for such and such school. And finally, after they have been doing this forever, one guy says, I play for the United States of America. And the coach says, yes. And to me, that is kind of what Jesus does. He intentionally um, invites us into things that are hard, things that push us beyond our boundaries, like this coach did. I mean, he pushed them. And even the other coaches were like, are you sure you want to keep pushing them? And he did because he knew that the outcome was going to be unity, where Mm. they depended on each other and they were a team. And that's what he wants with us. That's so good. I love that. And the the, the thing that uh, is interesting about this, so we've talked before about using what I call reading filters as you're reading the Bible. So as you're reading uh, about Jesus anywhere in the Gospels, here's a reading filter to use. Simply ask yourself, how is Jesus injecting hardship into this person's life, whoever it is he's meeting? I think you'll find that in the overwhelming majority of encounters that he has, even with people who are very needy, he injects some level of hardship into their lives for the purpose of their greater freedom. Mm-hmm. He's loving them beyond the categories that we use for love, but they are truly loving them because his eye is on their freedom. He wants people to be free of their captivity. So use that as a reading filter whenever you're reading about Jesus. Just ask yourself, how is he injecting hardship instead of removing it? In this, in, and often it's happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. He's removing a hardship while he's injecting a different one mm-hmm. into their life. Keep your uh, radar up for that, and you'll see that Jesus is doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be good to, to, now that we're focused a little bit on Jesus' behavior with people, let's skip forward into this idea that our dependence on, on Jesus is really what he's after in the end this sense that when we feel overwhelmed, that we are naturally drawn to together Mm -hmm. instead. Instead of isolating ourselves um, by trying to figure out how we can overcome this problem, Mm -hmm. that we're naturally drawn into a dependent relationship. Well, I noticed that the cliche is Jesus will never give you more than you can handle. (laughs) It's very focused on what you can handle. That's good. And Jesus was interested in your weakness and we've got some examples of um, stories from the Bible that I think illustrate this really well, and then also just instances of him demonstrating his dependency. Yeah, so what, what's, what's radical here is that when we say we were created to have a dependent relationship with Jesus, that's why, in fact, why we know that in our weakness he is strong. Well, why? In our weakness he is strong, therefore making us strong, because we're connected and dependent on him. But the radical thing here is that Jesus also lived a dependent life with his Father. 
that he was not, uh, even though he was God incarnate, he modeled a dependent lifestyle. So I thought we could skip to a few little examples of how Jesus lived a dependent lifestyle with his own Father that will give us kind of a mindset heading into John 16, where we're going to camp for a few minutes. So in John chapter 5, 19 through 20, I'm just going to go through these real quick, and you'll see this pattern of dependence that Jesus has. So here's what it says. So Jesus explained to the people, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing. Do you hear the dependent lean that Jesus has with his Father? In John 6, 14 through 16, he says, uh, it says, when the people saw Jesus do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. So now the people are like, hey, this is the guy, this is the Messiah. So uh, when, when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now this is fascinating because the people are now wanting to crown him king, give him earthly power, get behind him, let's get the revolution. And Jesus uh, instinctively knows, hey, I got to go be alone with my Father. I believe he's reconnecting with his mission. Mm-hmm. That ain't my mission. I got to mm-hmm. reconnect with my Father and have him reprioritize mm-hmm. everything I'm doing right well, now. Well, remember the devil tempted him with that. I yeah. mean, he's a human being. You know, he's he's God and also a man. So that was that was a specific temptation: so, becoming a, a king, a ruler. So, yeah. So Jesus goes off in in a dependent way to recalibrate with his Father, and Mm -hmm. then continuing on, it says, that evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. So it was a long time he was away. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. So it wasn't just a little five-minute break Mm -hmm. to reconnect with his Father. It was a significant amount of time that he went back alone to reconnect. In John 8, verse 1, here's an interesting little one. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, like this is one of his special places where he goes to be alone and to isolate himself. I, For me, in, uh, I, in my basement, we have an unfinished basement with a rotten old orange couch down there, and when I know I need to reconnect with Jesus, I go down to the basement and sit on that couch in the dark because it blots out my distractions. I think that's what Jesus is doing here on the Mount of Olives. Um, and then the last one, uh, this little vignette, is from John 12, 35 through 36. And here's what it says. Jesus replied, My light will shine for you just a little bit longer. So he's talking to his disciples here. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness can't see where they're going, so put your trust in the light while there's still time. Then you'll become children of the light. And after saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. <laughs> so, I just have this picture of him always kind of like ducking out of the crowd. Ducking out, yeah. You know, like, do you know those people who come to parties and you see them there and then you turn around and all of a sudden they're gone? They've mysteriously disappeared? This is Jesus. Yeah, I the think. disciples are all the time like, hey, <laughs> hey, wasn't he Where'd just they here? Where'd he go? Where'd he go? John, you're the one, you're the one who, you're the disciple Jesus loved. Where the heck is he? Um, but he he was ducking out all the time, and the reason he was ducking out was he understood the rhythm of dependence in his own life, that he needed to sometimes cut away the voices and noises that were around him and recalibrate his relationship. So this last part that we're going to focus on is from John 16, and really most of that chapter is really focused on Jesus emphasizing our intimate connection 
with with the Spirit, with Him, that this is our normal, everyday way of living. So let me just read you a little portion of this, and then Steph and I will talk about this. Um, he's speaking again to his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for the cross that is to come. He's trying to spin this by saying, hey, when I go, this is actually going to work out for you, because our plan isn't for you to relate to me in a physical way the rest of your lives. Actually, that's not the plan. You got three years with me. That's going to be it. And the, the thing that's better is about to come. So here's what Jesus says to his disciples. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own, but will tell you what he's heard. He'll tell you about the future. He'll bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So here he's sinking into this way of life that he's, he's kind of <laughs> painting for the disciples. Your life is going to look like this, where you're constantly uh, going back and forth to the Spirit within you to check in. To, to not just get guidance, but to talk about your everyday life so that you know my heart. The Spirit's going to show you my heart. This dependent relationship is the normal, everyday way I'd like you to live. So when I read that, Steph, what pops into your head about normal life with the Spirit? Well, notice that it doesn't make any promises about the circumstances of your normal life. You know, I think about Paul. He's in prison, and he's talking in Philippians about how he's... I. I've learned the secret to happiness, he says, that whether I have little or whether I have much, I'm content. And I think that that, that really is a goal. It's something to set your, your sights on is, can I get to the place where I'm not afraid anymore, where I, whether it's, whether it's hard, whether it's easy, that I am content. And we know, if you've, if you've read Paul, you know what makes him content, and that is dependent relationship with Jesus. And so I think that that's rather than, oh, you know, like I said, some of these cliche things that we say to each other that are just kind of pat responses, that we don't expect that we won't have hard things. In fact, we expect to have hard things, but that we seek this secret that Paul talks about where regardless of what is happening in our lives, we have this foundation, this intimate communication that never stops, that's happening all the time with the Spirit within us, which was what Jesus said was greater even than his physical company, which is a remarkable thing to say. And so I think that that's what, what I think of. One of the things that to, to think about here is that this role of feeling overwhelmed. We've said God will never give you anything that you can't handle. That's the heresy. The, the feeling of having something that you can't handle, that's too much for you, is a terrible, terrible feeling. And, but what it does in that moment is it naturally drives you to a source of strength outside of yourself. It naturally, even if you don't believe in God, when you're really under it, you might take a shot, a risk, and turn your attention to God at least for a, a season, because you just know that you don't have enough, whatever you have. And think about how Jesus... Um, loves us in this moment. When we don't naturally turn to Him, the very thing we need the most is a dependent relationship on Him to gain the strength that He has, but we won't do it in our everyday life as long as we feel like we're on top of things. Mm -hmm. As long as, you know, uh, it's really true, God never does bring anything that's too hard for you to handle, because my life has been, uh-oh, oh, oh, well that, oh, oh my gosh, that's way bigger than I thought. It's in that moment 
where we no longer can believe that we're little gods because we're out of bullets. Mm -hmm. we're, we don't have any fuel in the tank anymore, and we turn ourselves to Him, and we get a taste or an experience of what it's like to radically depend on Him. And what's interesting is if you talk to anyone who's been in that place, they hated that season mm -hmm. of their life, but the one thing they loved was the intimacy they experienced, the every-moment dependence they had to experience with Jesus. I'm thinking back even to... Um, was it last week or two weeks ago when the Becky Nader was on and she was talking about her life now, you know, basically outfitting a van to live on the road and hoping her new freelance job turns out and every moment she's feeling this necessity to depend upon Jesus. And you can hear this in her voice that this is really hard, but oh, it's really leveraging mm -hmm. uh, an intimacy with Jesus that is so good. It's so enjoyable. And when we experience that, we start to get this thought inside that maybe I could live this way even when I'm not in trouble, even when I'm not overwhelmed. Maybe I can live a dependent life with Jesus as my normal, everyday thing. So, Steph, when we think about the whole emphasis here is God will never give you anything you can't handle together with Him, so we're emphasizing the together part here. Mm -hmm. What does it look like when you're in the midst of everyday life, when you're facing tough challenges, to to do them together with Jesus? How, how does that work in your life? So I, I thought of about three examples that, just off the top of my head, for how this looks for me personally. And the first one actually was reinforced by a friend. It's a mutual friend, actually. Rick and I both were friends with her. Um, her name was Amy, and she had a very, gosh, just aggressive form of cancer. A brutal battle with yeah. cancer. And she, I remember that she would, um, whenever she would talk about future tests that were coming up or future protocols that she had to go through that she was, you know, obviously nervous about and anxious about, she would say, but that's, that's something for future Amy to worry about. Today, Amy doesn't need to take on that worry. And I think that that's one of the most practical. There's a reason one day at a time is such an effective mindset for people who are daily overcoming and in recovery of addiction. And for me, it's also been extremely practical. Those times when, when you are in the middle of a very hard thing or a dark time to be able to just, I'm not going to think about tomorrow, whatever those future issues are. I'm going to just focus on God, I don't know if you can get me through this. I really don't think I can get through this, but I think I might be able to get through today. So that that's one thing. Um, another thing for me that's been really useful is rest. And this kind of relates to what we were saying with Jesus kind of taking himself out of the picture. So times when I've had difficulty in my life, there's a lot of temptation to just kind of keep up with everything and to not let, and, and part of this I think is valiant. You don't want to let hard things take over your life and really change your life. But sometimes you just need to rest because dealing with hard things is, uh, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of emotional energy. And I think that, you know, God instituted a Sabbath rest, which in the New Testament, he describes it as kind of this state of mind, really, this relationship with him. And I think that rest has always been really good for me to maybe take things down a notch, give myself permission to bow out of things that I'd normally go to, and basically embrace the freedom of not having to keep things going the way that they were when things weren't as hard. And to clear, and, and to clear space to reconnect with mm -hmm. 
the strength that Jesus has. This is, I think this is why Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's why he went to a hidden place. Um, it rest is also, um, I don't have to do this alone. Yeah, I need to go remind myself of that. I need Jesus to remind me mm-hmm. that I don't have to do this alone. One of the things that I started doing 20, 25 years ago, because I speak a lot, and I'm uh, basically insecure like everybody is, you're either insecure and honest or insecure and dishonest. Those are the two options that we have. And so whenever I would go to speak in front of people, I'd feel the anxiety kind of rise up in me. What if this crashes and burns? And that was not an unrealistic possibility, by the way. I crashed and burned many times. So the anxiety would start to well up in me. And so I would literally go to a place where I could be alone, and I would physically open my arms to, to Jesus and say, I feel anxiety right now. I need to reconnect with you and be reminded of why I'm doing this, and I, I need to offer myself to you. And I opened my arms to, to physically be vulnerable in front of him so that I wasn't in a posture that said, mm-hmm. I can handle this. And I started doing that all the time. But then I realized you know, five or six or seven years ago that whenever I felt anxiety, whether it was to speak or anything else, I could, that, I could use that as a trigger for myself to open myself physically to him. There's something about using your body there is. where you physically do something that says, I'm not closed, I'm open, mm-hmm. that can reconnect you to Jesus, um, because our bodies are a powerful reminder or a powerful posture mm-hmm. for us toward Jesus. So now I do that whenever I feel the trigger of anxiety in myself, I, I pause and listen to that. I pay attention to that, and I think instead of muscling in, uh, I'm going to open myself to reattach myself to Jesus, become dependent again towards Him, instead of I'm on top of it. So that's something that I do. The other thing that I do all the time, I mean, I, I find myself saying this under my breath all the time, especially when I'm feeling overwhelmed, or like I'm working so hard to stay on top of things that I'm exhausted, I, I will just say under my breath, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. I'll just repeat mm-hmm. it over and over again. It's a way of recalibrating my focus from my interior source of strength to an exterior source of strength. And it's a humble posture for me to say, just have mercy on me, have mercy on me. It's me being like a child again and admitting, this is too much for me. This is too much for me. So I say, Jesus, have mercy on me. It's a way of handing, including him in whatever it is that I'm going through. Did you have one more, Steph? Another, another. Well, way? you touched on it really, which was just to be honest. Um, I think the underlying response is rather than coach yourself in your mind, oh, well, this, you know, this isn't more than I can handle. That you say, this is this is more than I can handle, <laughs> and you just admit it. This is more than I can handle, and you invite the Holy Spirit through one of these ways. You know, you limit. You're focused to one day at a time. You express vulnerability physically, spiritually, emotionally. You're honest about how you're really feeling, and you're not trying to brush away things or, or power up in your own strength. And and you stop saying, God will never give you more than he can handle. That's so good. <laughs> but together, and that that's, that's the key word that we're trying to emphasize here. It's the together that Jesus is really after. He wants together more than anything else. He wants intimate relationship with you more than anything else. We were created for it. 
And there are a lot of hurdles he has to overcome in our brokenness to invite us and woo us into a together relationship with him that is intimate and dependent. That's what he's really after. Hey, gang, for uh, for those of you who are piqued your interest a little bit by some of these themes I mentioned that are in Spiritual Grit, like I mentioned, it's coming out in, in late April, and we have a special group of people who want to be part of the team that helps launch that book. And it's not just launching a book. I think of this as a really important and uh, uh, profound opportunity to be like an unusual missionary. If you love some of the ways that we talk about Jesus and what a life with Jesus is like on this podcast, one way that you can be an unusual missionary is to make a book like Spiritual Grit get noticed by more people, people that wouldn't typically even pick up a book like this, but you can help by exposing them to this, exposing them to a kind of life they never thought was possible. And you can have a big role in it that doesn't take a lot of effort or a lot of energy. You just do simple things that will help other people notice that this book is there. And if we get enough people doing that, it kind of hits a tipping point where a, a wider number of people are actually exposed to this, and you can be a part of that. We'll have a link on our podcast page on how you can join that group. Steph, is there a, a another way that I should mention to them that they can join that group? Or No, if- the podcast, your podcast description is the, probably the best location, or at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. It'll have a link to the Facebook group. Yeah, and all you do is just uh, ask to be invited into that group, and there's some really cool stuff that we're doing for that group. The, that group will get the entire introduction of the book before, um, long before it's released in late April. There's a bunch of other things we're going to do. I just announced to, the, to that group today that this is, sounds crazy, but it was a long and winding road to, <laughs> to finish this book, and along the way I actually wrote uh, a chap- an entire chapter that took me uh, a lot of time and energy to craft, that in the end I had to take out of the book. It just didn't belong in the flow of the book, but it's still really uh, a wonderful, powerful chapter, but nobody's ever going to read that chapter, except for the group that signs up to be on the launch team. I'm going to give that chapter to that group. Um, so that's one of the special surprises. And we have other stuff. We do. Yeah, that's happening on there. So if that interests you, go to our Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com and you'll find a link there to join that launch team. Again, it's launching in, a, in about a month. So, so again, gang, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. This episode is season three, episode 13. And this is a podcast from Lifetree. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes. For all of our latest podcasts, you can go back and see what the themes are of our previous podcasts on that page, and, and I encourage you to do that. If to if you're new to the podcast, go back and see which ones really uh, strike you and appeal to you, and, and you'll be hearing Steph Hilbury again when we hit another sweet spot for her. So thanks, Steph, for being on the you're podcast You're welcome. Today. It was my pleasure. All right, gang, thanks for being a part of the community. Thanks for listening today.